Heavenly Father, we do thank you for who you are, first and foremost. Before we ever get to what you've done, let us just be reminded that we exalt you for who you are. We do thank you for uh, the, the plan of salvation that your son uh, willingly carried out with fullness to the end, giving up his own life, and we thank you for that being the, the means by which we are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that that spirit, your Holy Spirit, person, not an it, not a thing, but the person of the Holy Spirit would work in and through us today to illuminate the truths that we are learning and apply them to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as you're looking at your sheet, um, and this is kind of letting Mark know because I didn't let Mark know, um, I'm going to go ahead and read the first paragraph and give my little uh, running editorial on that. Then I'm going to ask somebody to uh, uh, read half of uh, uh, Psalm 73. That's up to verse 7, and the other person take from 8 to 14. Then I've got a bunch of questions to pose us, uh, and then, Mark, that'll be you running around put, giving folks the mic for the... That's really their time to jump in and, and interact. Then uh, the backside of, of the paper takes on the, the change in direction for the, uh, the psalm, so we'll hit the backside with a bunch of questions as well. Um, hopefully, we'll see the, the value of this psalm in particular. So the, the study that uh, Trip had this week, oh my goodness, it was wonderful. It was 10 pages long, and we'd be here 10 weeks. So I, listen, we, I picked a section, and we're going to go with it from there. So we have, do you believe 12 historic <laughs> Peter's smiling because the last few times I've said 12 historical, it's not historical, it's historic doctrines to change your everyday life. By the way, if I ever say anything wrong in the sermon, please come up to me afterwards so I can correct it, if I, particularly as it relates to theology. Sometimes what's in my mind does not come out of my mouth um, correctly anyways. Chapter 22 we're in, and it's dealing with the perseverance and glorification of the saints in everyday life. Last week we really didn't touch on glorification, so this week we're going to see that component come into the picture if you'll follow along with me, I'm going to read uh, paragraph one there. God calls you to persevere. God keeps you, that is, God assures you that you will never completely, uh, that there's a typo there, it should say fall away from him while awaiting the glory that lies ahead. This is the interpretive tool. That's key as we look at Psalm 73. When he says this is the interpretive tool, that means this is not something descriptive, just describing, oh, this is what happened in Psalm 73 we're going to look at today, where you can take components of Psalm 73 and go, oh, this is prescriptive. We take the principles we see here and we can apply them to understanding our own lives and how we could, the grid we should see our lives through. So that's what he means by this is an interpretive tool by which you should make sense of the situations, locations, and relationships in your life. The doctrines of perseverance and glorification are not just important theological insights. They have been revealed to us so that between the already, what Christ has done, and the not yet, when, upon his return, they would form for us a way of living. Again, there's, the, there's why we're studying this. We want to grasp that as uh, faithful uh, children of God. Remember, belief is not just a matter of mental assent, which our Western culture even the way we learn, you know, our, the way classrooms are set up, ascent, 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 um, versus actually what does that mean 
for us, and we continue on, it says it's not just a matter of mental assent, but also a way of living. If you don't live what you believe, then you probably don't believe it in the biblical sense of what belief means. What he just said there was belief in the, according to the, the Bible and the context of salvation is not just assent. It means that belief, if you believe, you will demonstrate that belief in your life. You'll live it out through saving actions, actions of gratitude, of, of obedience towards the God who gives us the understanding of how we're called to live. So um, uh, belief is always accompanied by actions, godly actions, I should say, um, with us. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and get started with a, a psalm of Asap, Psalm 73. Um, I'm going to do this just by, this isn't everyone in line, this is whoever feels comfortable singing, ver- singing, good, Nick. Yeah, well, that just limited it down a whole bunch of people. How about <laughs> reading uh, verse 1 through 7 in the psalm? We'll break it up into two parts. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. All right, anybody want to take on verse 8? Verses 8 through 14 and read that. Thank you, Monica. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Okay, let's read this as Bereans, and let's read this as Christians, not liberal academic theologians. A liberal academic theologian reads this as history, and that's where it stops. We read this for the purpose of gaining out of it, okay? Because of what we're reading here, we can learn from what God is trying to teach us. There's a reason why... God had Asaph pen Psalm 73. So the first question is, what is the contrast that Asaph uh, sets up in verses 1 through 2? What is the contrast you see set up here? We got Jane over there. And I understand that it might take a little bit of time for us to get to start to feel a flow here, so I appreciate anybody given comment. I will help steer this if we're going in a different direction. Don't worry about um, being terribly off. Verse 1 tells us that we know God is good and that he desires 
for us to have a pure heart, and he rewards us. Um, but we realize in verse 2 that we fall short and that we are not pure in heart. Um, and yet there's, there's that dichotomy. God is good to us. He cares about us. Good. Can I, can I keep you with the mic? Okay. Um, what are the, the two words we see in verse 2 that contrast goodness? What did, what did we do? Or for him, it's Asaph who represents us. Um, what would be the contrast? Stumbling, to? slipping. Good. Stumbling and slipping. Okay, so he had stumbled or slipped, so we have an idea that when, he, when we read this, this is going to be him. Uh, and notice he says, I almost stumbled and slipped, as, as if to what? To sin. To sin by, good. Okay, let me just help you on a little bit. because I. Oh, go ahead, PJ. I just can't help but think this is about fidelity, uh, faithfulness. God is consistently faithful, and then we slip in our faithfulness. Sorry. So, what's that? God is pure. God is pure, good. We're starting to pop, pop a little bit here. Popcorn's going off now, baby. Okay, uh, Gerald, let's get it over there. So the idea that God isn't good, you were saying. Yeah, exactly. Good. So you, you start to see that, okay. He starts off with the statement, God is good. You know, truly God is good to Israel and even to Israel. And, and he's stumbling or slipping. The contrasting is he's saying, yeah, I, I really almost messed up here and said God is not good. And it comes by way of what we're going to see next. So we want to see that. All right, so <clears throat> question number two there. How does knowing the truth behind this contrast help prepare you to persevere in your struggles in this life? Sean, jump in. Water's warm. <laughs> Well, the thing that was just coming to mind, um, so a lot of you know I've been in a new job for a while, and God has greatly blessed our family through this new job, and very thankful for it. Um, so I felt like I'm a bit in a bit of an uphill climb hmm. currently with it. So I only give you that reference point to say this. It's very easy to look around. I, I, look, I work in a really big office. You know, there's tons of cubicles. Um, people from all uh, backgrounds, uh, lots of people who are not believers, lots of very smart people who are not believers, successful people. And it's very easy to look at those people, especially maybe people who are in a position above you and go and to think, wow, I wish I, I wish I was as settled in this as they appear to be, mm. you know, and just thriving and everything's great and everything appears to be great. And of course that's the, that's, you know, this is what the temptation is going on here and like in one and two. I mean, you know, it's very easy to do that, but um, the Lord has been teaching me in the past week, especially the Lord's been helping me to apply uh, to uh, my faith in, uh, in this way. Like I'll, I'll come to each, the beginning of each day and I, you know, I'm, I, I remember God's great blessings of the past. I remember how he's been faithful. I remember how he's put me in this position and all the markers that God has made clear to me that he has moved to put me in this position. And then, um, you know, I praise God as being, um, you know, sovereign over all. 
And, I, and he's helping me to see my life differently, to see my life in the context of being his son, right? And working in this job and being his son and that I'm a victor in this position, not because of what I can see at the moment, but because he is God and because of what he declares to be true, right? And then that helps me. I hope I'm answering the, this question uh, within, you know, what you want but, uh, for this. But, but it, it, I'm just, it's, he's helping me to be victorious each day in, in light of who he is and all he's done and, and being his chosen son. Not looking to the world's version of what victory is or the moment by moment. Okay. You so you're, he's doing something with your suffering. Yeah. Pete, you, did you have something? Then I'll go back to Gary. You know, Asaph in verse 1 is describing the character of God as it relates to God's people. God is good to Israel, and Asaph himself is a member of Israel. And so um, I'm looking at this and thinking, okay, Asaph recognizes his feet had almost stumbled and his steps had nearly slipped, and yet he's already declared the truth that God is good to Israel. So by you know, then necessarily he's saying that God is good to him, even though he had almost stumbled and had nearly slipped. And he's good. maintaining the pure in heart because they're his people. It's a yeah. wonderful. Yes. Gary, you wanted to add? I don't know. Those were really good. Both <laughs> of those were really good. But I, I just see it as even though uh, God is always good. Even though I, I may stumble, he does not. And that, uh, to, to bring in another a tulip, that irresistible grace uh, are, will lead me to the point where I recognize I'm, I'm stumbling and I'm falling. And I trust God's word that the per- perseverance will come in and I'll get back on the right track. That's good. I th- oh, okay, we got one more. And then no more. I'm not taking any others. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> just looking at uh, verse 14 in particular, talking about he lists through all these struggles he has with the success of, of those who, the enemies of God around him. And then he says, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And... Um, Obviously, we know God is in control of all things, and there will be perseverance. And so um, the question is, when he talks about stumbling, is who's the rebuking coming from? Do you recognize who the true rebuke is coming from? So it just makes me think of uh, Hebrews 12, uh, 3 through 6. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Uh, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So uh, I guess I'm, I'm seeing here that the goodness of God is that. Asaph is being rebuked, whether through men and the mocking of men or whatever God has him going through. The day God stops rebuking me would be a very concerning thing. And so the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, he's rebuking Asaph. 
Okay. So you're dealing with suffering based on something you've done. Um, I think Asaph is dealing with suffering based on what the world is just coming at him, the wicked versus he's, he's, he's trying to stay righteous. Um, but both ways, either way, here's the contrast. E- either way, uh, we suffer. Two, two things, the reality of God is good to me. That means there's value. I heard you guys all talk about that. There's value in it. But as it relates to perseverance, there's value and I will persevere. And I will persevere. God is going to bring me to that place. And we're going to see that God in, intervenes here and, and, in fact, brings him back to this place of almost slipping. Okay, uh, question number three. What was Asaph's, or Asaph, yeah, Asaph's sin in verse three that skewed his perspective of his suffering? Just one word there. What was Asaph's sin in verse 3, that skewed his perspective of his suffering or in his suffering. Envy. Envy? Very good. He envied. Uh, anybody got a uh, definition, something that can help me out with uh, understanding what envy is? Wanting other stuff. Yeah, wanting other people's stuff. Good. Coveting. Coveting. Yeah, okay, good. So, stands from lack, lack of, con- ah, very good. So if you look it up, you'll find that there's a discontentedness and there's a, here's a, another word, a resentfulness, a, res, a resenting. So you're, not only do you want what the other one per, person has because they have something and you don't, but you resent them for having it. So it's, it's double forked there. Okay, so we've got an idea of what envy is. and we can. Uh, so the next question is, uh, let's... Well, number, question number four. What role does motive play in how we view the problem we face? So I'm asking for some critical thinking. Did you have your uh, hand up uh, back there, Joe? Woohoo! Um, so what role does motive, because we've got a motive issue with envy. So what role does motive play in how we view the problem we face? I think a lot of it is um, pride and, and vanity and trying to please ourselves as opposed to pleasing, pleasing God um, and not being pure in heart. Like he says up top, he's good to Israel, but to those who are pure in heart. And then he, in verse 13, he says, in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So is he doing it for himself, uh, for his vanity, or is he doing it to worship God and please God? So would it be fair then, Joe, to say that Motive, his motive, self, as you're identifying, wanting to gain what the other guy wants and being resentful when he, does, when he can't gain it, and he, the other guy has it and I don't. That's wrong. I should have it too. Uh, does that motive skew how he is viewing his suffering? That wrong motive skew how he is viewing his suffering? Yes. Good. I'm trying, I'm trying to... <laughs> Perfect. You nailed it, Joe. That's that's the point I'm saying here. When we are viewing, and we can learn this here, when we are viewing our suffering wrong, ask ourselves, potentially anyways, it would seem consistent that our motive is off somewhere. Nicholas, when you are grumbling, your motive is off. Well, I'm going to take it past grumbling. That's the response to my suffering. I'm viewing my suffering wrong. It has no value worthy of me going through it. 
and God is not good, using it, causing me to persevere so that I gain the value from it. Do you see how my motive is making me see this through a wrong filter? And, and in my case, I'm, I'm suggesting to you in my little example there, that my grumbling is taking me a completely different way. I'm headed off to, why? Versus, what's the value? Because I know you are good to Israel. I know you are good to me. So there has to be value in this suffering. So the next question is, question number five, identify some of Asaph's skewed perception of the problem in verses 3 through 14. I mean, this is just cherry picking. You have tons of things you could do here. Uh, we got Glenda up here. You can see, and, and by the way, this isn't picking on Asaph. This is, <laughs> do I see that in me? So go ahead, Glenda. Um, would it be helpful to know a little background about Asaph? Because if, if I remember, he was a temple uh, musician during the time of David and Solomon. And so I've always wondered about, he saw a lot of great stuff and he saw a lot of bad stuff. And mm. so David was really blessed and then Solomon came and was many of these attributes. So I know I'm not answering the question, but um, if that's the same ASAP, he really saw a we, lot. Most scholars will say that they believe that's the same ASAP, okay. that there are different ASAPs, that, that there's an argument for some of these so other. So if I was in his position, seeing especially what Solomon had, I would really have the jealousies mm. Um, mm. for the empire that he had and how God had blessed him, but then he went so askew, Solomon did. And, and just the, um, that would be interesting to watch if you were Asaph. Yeah. And yet we all do it. Yeah. Okay, so let's take a look at some of these components. Okay. Uh, what are some of the okay. skewed perceptions of the problem that he has? Because these are problems, but can you see if you can't hear how he skewed them? He is, he is overstating them, if you will. Th take a look at some of these. Anybody want to? They have, they have no pangs until death. They have no problems, no pains. Their bodies are fat and sleek. So life is wonderful for them. Yeah, uh, yeah. always wonderful for the, for the wicked. Really? Is that true? Is that how we, we couch the wicked? They're always happy? It's interesting. It's really not accurate. Yeah, they, and they scoff and speak with malice, so they don't even, you know, they have no regard to, with God at all, so it's, and yet it's working out for them, or it appears that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good insight. Let's keep going. Prideful. They're prideful. Uh, he doesn't, let's see, uh, let's see, yeah, therefore pride is their necklace. They wear it in, in, with such vanity. Oh, 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 look at this beautiful thing around my neck. I adorn pride about me. I mean, that's, is that, I mean, to some degree I could definitely see that. Okay, he's, he's got a little, I'll give him on that one, I think that that's probably a true statement. I, in fact, I think six is probably pretty cl close, although I wouldn't say it's constantly occurring. Violence covers them as a garment. You, you constantly do see. We can't say constantly. don't always see violence in there. He's making generalities. How about something else in there? Uh, Monica? Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. 
It is not a vain thing to keep your heart clean. Ah, good. And who can stand before God and say, I've kept my heart clean? Come on. Let's just walk back a 24-hour period. Okay, let's break that 24-hour period up into morning, noon, and evening. Do you see where I'm going with this? Really, that's your perspective? Their over-the-top wickedness is what you're pointing out. And you, you got it all going? Now, I, I get it. He's, he's trying to say that, you know, I've worked hard to, to try and keep it clean. I, I've, I've sacrificed. But that's not what he says. Okay, um, somebody else. Uh, Pete? Oh, and Alice, too, afterwards. We got you running around, Mark. Actually, just an observation that, you know, thinking about the earlier, you know, it at least makes a little bit of sense when he says they uh, they scoff and speak with malice and they set their mouths against the heavens. That the, you know, those are bad things. But the, early, the earlier complaints of being, um, I saw the prosperity of the wicked, no pangs of death, no trouble. And if you think about it, what's the alternative? Well, I want them not to be prosperous. I want them to be hungry. Mm. I want them to be stricken. Like, so you're frustrated that somebody else isn't miserable. Mm. And, uh, that, that, that's a miserable place to be. So just an because, because they deserve it. But what do you deserve? Oh, well, I, my heart's perfectly clean. That's good, Pete. All right, Alice. Uh, yeah, 13, how, um, I'm sorry, in 12, the wicked seem always at ease. Hmm. And they increase in riches. So when you look at a non-believer or, you know, someone like that, they're, they're getting richer and richer and just seem to be just going along just fine. Right. And it, it, it can look like that to us, but it's not the truth. When you start to investigate some of the lives of those that look like they got everything that the world says you, you, you should have, take any Hollywood star, they're, you know, they're stars just by definition, they're, they're held up high, and you look at their lives, and they're miserable. I mean, I was going to go with a different analogy, but let's, let's, let's just continue on. Okay, anything else before we move on? Okay, <clears throat> let's look at uh, question number six. I'm getting you guys to, to dig a little more. Why do you think we do the same type of skewing in our lives? And if you've, if you've never grumbled, then, I have a, then you, you, you can move on to the next question. If you've ever grumbled, stay with me. <clears throat> Whether it stays within the realm of our minds or we convey, because that's what he's doing here, Asaph is conveying that to God, or we convey what's in our minds to God through prayer. In other words, what are some possible motives for skewing the reality of our suffering? Gerald? <clears throat> some possible motives. It's so sad that that's such an easy question. Um, <laughs> pick me, I pick think, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, just thinking about uh, going all the way back to verse 1, just that somehow God is withholding his love or his grace. He's withholding something from me. Um, and recognizing that is just so antithetical to Romans 8. Like it's just not even, you know, in the ballpark. But, but that's, where I, that's where I land. I land. I land with Asaph. You know, God was good, but I'm looking around and no, it doesn't look good to me. You know, you know that was the original lie in the garden. One of the aspects of it, that God was holding back, you could be like God. 
He doesn't want you to be like him. If you, you, he's holding back. It's all right there, baby. Just take that fruit, and you're on your own, and go with it. So earlier I read the, that Hebrews passage about discipline. You talked about how, well, that's suffering you bring upon yourself. Um, in this case, arrogant. Uh, Asaph is experiencing this suffering, this suffering from others. And to me, I guess, um, I think an answer to this is, is kind of my, my point and what I think maybe Asaph's point is here, which is this suffering is Asaph's fault. It, it's Asaph. It's not these people. He's c- comparing and contrasting himself to the wrong standard, which is look what they have, compare me to that. That's wrong. It should be look at what I have, compare me to God's holiness. Hmm. And as soon as you compare yourself to God's holiness, the fact that you have breath is already too much for you. So to me, it's, it's kind of like we've, we're told over and over throughout Scripture how meaningless the things he's described as good and valuable in this, how valueless they are. So then it's like, well, if this guy has a big old pile of mud and I'm sitting here going, woe is me that he doesn't have mud, well, all of this misery I'm currently feeling is because I'm valuing the wrong thing. So, so for me, it's, it's like I've brought on my own suffering beyond just the corporate all suffering comes from sin. And so I think if instead we're thinking, well, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, then if, if it's that way, then like really there is no suffering in this world at all that is not self-inflicted in, 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 to some degree. Um, so I think here, like when I think about this with Asaph, if his heart is set aright in comparing himself to the standard of God, if his motive is God, uh, then none of this is actually even suffering, let alone um, having the strength to endure that suffering. It wouldn't have been suffering in the first place. And so I think for us then, doing the same thing, or definitely for, for P.J. Smith, it's the moment I compare myself to anything other than to Christ, it, like I'm losing. I, I am absolutely losing. And, um, um, and then I would add, too, I can, have never once kept my heart from, kept my heart clean. I have never once, and I will never once keep my heart clean. Um, it's obviously the Holy Spirit who keeps our hearts clean. So I just, I think all of this is like so earthly focused. You're losing, he's just losing focus of eternity and keeping our eyes on the kingdom come and the ruler of that kingdom. So, anyway, that, yeah. You know, you could boil it down to the prosperity gospel. He wants the health and wealth and the best life now. That's why he's getting stuck in right there. So we can see some of the wrong motives, whether it's ease or, you know, uh, you know, he has the fullness of life. That's what it means when it talks about the fatness. It's the fullness of life. He wants those things. And we can see those very same things in our own lives. When we get upset because someone's, we're impatient with somebody because it's not happening at the time frame that I think in my mind this should be unfolding. Can't you get up to speed? I mean, you just sit there and you realize that I'm playing the role of Asaph here. I'm on slippery ground. If I, if, in fact, if I'm actually engaging that with somebody else, I have slipped. Robert, let's, let's hear from you, and then we're going to flip the page over because we've got to get the good news. And we're running out of time. <laughs> this is fleshed out a little bit more, at least the same uh, general parallel with uh, Habakkuk or Habakkuk, depending on how you want to <laughs> pronounce it. 
Um, but he has a complaint. He's complaining to God, and you have uh, the answer. He's complaining because these other nations are certainly more vile and wicked than Israel, and yet they're prospering. And in fact, these other nations that are worse than Israel are going to be used to judge Israel. And how can this be? How is this going to work? He says, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? This is an accusation and a complaint against God. He said, destruction, violence are before me. Um, The wicked surround the righteous. And the Lord says, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So part of this is an injustice. It's not just, hey, they're rich and so forth, but there's an aspect of it's at the expense of the poor. Part of the reason the poor are poor and the rich are rich, there's some inequity that um, is there. But the Lord is doing uh, a work, and to PJ's point, there's an internal um, perspective that God has that, that we don't have. And you see elsewhere in the Psalms these references to um, feet not slipping. For instance, in uh, Psalm 66, verse 9, it reads, bless, o, bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living, he has not let our feet slip. Right? Mm-hmm. And this is repeated numerous times through the Psalms. And if you remember Hannah's prayer, He said, she said, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Feet represent the way we live our lives, you know, walking with the Lord, so to speak. And this idea of Asep almost slipping. Yeah, he almost slipped, but the reason he didn't slip wasn't because of Asep. It was because God kept his feet from slipping. Amen. And we're going to see that next. Um, By looking at the motive, by noting the envious, that was what was going on in the heart, and then you see the wrong thinking that's come to that. Or you might say it's the wrong thinking that drove the the envious, but you can see the wrong thinking uh, born out here. Sometimes we ask ourselves, why do I do the sins that I do? I don't know. I just don't know. One of the things that we can take from this is we can look at his wrong motive and ask ourselves, what am I wanting? What's my motive? Is my motive off? And that's why I am discontented and resentful. I'm bitter. My, the way I converse, the way I think, I'm not happy. I'm impatient. Whatever it is, sanctification is his doing in our lives. And to uh, the point here in Scripture is when what we're learning in this lesson, he will cause us to persevere in our sanctification. We, we can do our part by recognizing the motive that's off or allowing God to do it by way of conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let's go ahead and take a look at, let's flip the page here. Someone read verse 15 through 22 and then the other one, 23 through 28. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Can I jump in real quick there? That's a confusing way of saying, if I would have said what I was thinking, I would have really betrayed the people of God. So I didn't say it out loud. He was processing this. 
That's all he's saying right there. This is the turn we see he's starting to do. Go ahead. But when I had thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Hmm. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand. Okay, uh, someone else did the, oh, there we go, Brooklyn. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. I'm going to just make sure I, that I clarify in 25. When he says, whom have, I have you, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That doesn't mean he doesn't desire. He's doing this literary design where he's saying, my desire for you is so how much higher than my earthly desires. It's as if there is no other desire. Okay. Uh, so the question, uh, uh, number one there on the back side is, what did Asaph do in verse 17 that changed his weariness in trying to make sense of his situation on his own, which was taking place in verse 16? So what do we see Asaph doing that is prescriptive, not just descriptive for our own lives? Anybody? What is it? Corporate worship. He, he, so and why do you say corporate worship? Well, he went to the sanctuary. And the sanctuary is where? It is what? What does it re represent? Uh, it's a set-apart, you know, sanctuary. Some say that uh, sanctuary, part of it is a um, root that comes from sanctification, right? So you have a sanctuary. You have um, a place of gathering. Um, when Jesus was at synagogue, they carry a lot of the concepts of, of uh, church. There's worship. There's coming before God. Good. And in order, in order to do that, you're separating from the, from the world and its ways in order to specifically, directly, and implicitly focus on God and what he has to say. But not necessarily on your own, but um, with the people of God. Yes. Sanctuary is, is a set-apart place. This is, even, this is in the ancient Near East. They had sanctuaries for all the false gods. Sanctuary is a place where you go that is set apart from, from the normal places that you go to seek God. Well, there's only one true God, so all the other sanctuaries are false gods or sat satanic in nature, if you will. What we're called to do, what he did here, is he draws near to God by going corporately to the by going to the place where corporately God's people come to worship Him, see so see the high view of what happens here on Sunday. That that idea that I'm coming to get right in my mind. I'm drawing near to God. Okay, so the next question: What three things did Asaph realize about God in verses 23 and 24? 
if you can boil them down to three things. Okay, uh, we got Sean over here. And we'll, we'll go ahead and finish in the next four minutes. Okay, so this is, this is a gimme, right? He just states it. You guide me with your counsel. Oh, wait, wait, 23 and 4. He realizes that God is continually with him and that he's holding his hand. Right, not only is he with him, but he's holding his hand. Right? I almost can't help but think like God is. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pulling they, him there. It's yeah. a, it focuses on God. Go ahead. We're his child, right? Yes. And then he guides us with his counsel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and the last part of that? And I guess, yeah, and then, and then as a result, yeah, the God will receive him to glory. What I want you to see in that, thank you for, the, for that. God's the one holding the hand. He's in his presence, but God's the one holding the hand. Can you get that parental thing going in your mind where you realize that your child's in your presence because you're holding that child's hand? That child would be off playing somewhere. That's the faithfulness, the persevering love of God in our lives. You, what's that? He would slip. Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, that sounds biblical. Yeah, <laughs> you guide me with your counsel. Not I take your counsel. You guide me with your counsel. See the emphasis on God? And then, and here's the hermeneutic. Here's the interpretive tool that we forget. That, that I think he did the, uh, is a great reminder here. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Sometimes when we're failing to persevere, it's that last component. All we can see is the suffering and how hard it is in front of us instead of understanding that this suffering has value and looking beyond the suffering to the glory that waits ahead. And I think some of it is because we don't hear it preached much, or we didn't. Hopefully you're hearing it in this church. Um, you don't have a concept of what awaits, of what that is. It's just heaven's a place for fluffy clouds, and we go and we play harps. And if that's your understanding, who wants to go there? I mean, boring. I'm, I'm sorry, musical people. I'm not as in tune to playing a harp. I'm like, come on. I want to do something. I, yeah. That's just how God has wired me. And playing a harp is doing something. I do right. realize that. By but, the way, though, that's not the biblical picture, which he's about to get yeah, to. No, no. I, it's absolutely not the biblical picture. The, what's that? Yeah, not a bunch of naked babies playing on uh, harps. and Yeah, no, none of that. So I, 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 we only have, goodness gracious, we don't have time. I just, I just want, to, I want to challenge you. This is what I'll leave you with. What is your understanding? What do you picture when I say, when I talk, when the scripture talks about the glory that awaits you? What does that look like? And if you can't Describe that in detail. And I'm talking about not just, I'm not trying to get, get the necessarily just the imagery. I'm talking about the presence of God. Being able to, with confidence, stroll into the throne room and, and see God on his throne. Jesus Christ ruling and reigning. To be in the physical presence of someone that humbled himself and took on our flesh and forevermore, we will be able to actually see the invisible God. What an incredibly gracious God. And how many people are there that we have loved and we cannot wait to go see? Go ahead. We'll finish with PJ. Sorry about that, PJ. I can't help it because it is currently getting preached through um, by myself and Daniel and, and um, with Pastor Pete going through uh, Acts. 
part of that glory that is to come has come. We have some of that glory now. We get to boast in Christ and the work of Christ, and we get to come confidently before the throne of God now. We don't have to wait for that. It's just the final form of this will we get to look forward to even greater. But I don't want it to be lost. Like, the victory has been won. The glory is now in, in a form that is still not fully consummated yet until, until the end. So I just No, no, I appreciate it. In fact, I would say glory. because of our, uh, this is a nice segue, and we'll, we'll go into prayer after this, is because we don't know what, to, what is, lies before us, what glory is, it's this, 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 this cloudy something over there after we die, and it's good. Well, then we certainly can't see it in our lives if we don't know what it is as, as it's defined. So we miss it in both places. So I appreciate you saying we have it, not in the fullness yet, but we have it now. All right, Joe, I'll give you, uh, give him the mic for... No more presence of sin anymore. So all that t- temptation to slip is gone. Amen. Amen and amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. I thank you that the saints are engaged, that the saints are, are digging into the word, that there's not a fear, there's not a culture here that says that, oh, only the, the smart people can talk or only this or that or this. And Father, thank you that you remind us that we are a family of God and we're doing this together as a people of God corporately. We're relying on the power of your Holy Spirit as lived out in the lives of others within this body of Christ to understand this, in our context today, our persevering grace that we receive by the person of the Holy Spirit and the, the glorification, the glory that we have ultimately in its fullness in heaven, but we have today if we'll see and understand it and, 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 and see it in the midst of our trial. Father, help us. Open our eyes to these realities that we might bring you more glory while we walk through this sanctification because we do less grumbling and more exalting.